You're listening to the ESO Network, your station for all things geek. Welcome to the 42 cast, your ultimate answer to fandom, geekiness, and everything. As always, I am your host, Nathan, and we have another great episode lined up for you where I get to talk to George Buza, the Beast from X-Men the Animated Series and X-Men 97. I talked to him about playing the Beast in both of those series, about returning to the role in X-Men 97, and also talk about his career in general. I'm really appreciative of George for giving me his time. Uh, I think the discussion is a lot of fun, and I really hope that you enjoy it. But we'll get to that after just a little bit of housekeeping here. I do want to apologize that we've had almost a two-month hiatus on the show. Both my wife and my youngest daughter have been in and out of the hospital for the last couple of months for various reasons. I don't really want to get into details and things like that, but just it has been kind of a stressful time for me. It has been uh, a lot going on, and so I do apologize for that. Looking into the near future, Ben has helped me. The next four episodes are already edited. So as far as that's concerned, releases should be more regular. And I am starting to work on the next batch of episodes, including, of course, episode 200, which is coming up very soon. So I just wanted to let everybody know that I'm not going anywhere. There's no plan to scrap the show. I certainly still have interest in having these discussions. And I do feel sad that... You know, the backlog has just increased about the discussions that I want to have, and time has passed us by, but I can only do what I can do. So just keep watching this space, continue listening to the episodes as they come out, and like I say, I will be working to make the release schedule more regular from now on, and hopefully in the near future, at least get time streams off of hiatus. That's my goal. But the 42 cast remains the flagship, 42 cast remains where most of my effort is, and so that will always get the priority, and keeping this on time is what I want to do. Alright, but that's me getting a little too wordy there. Uh, It's time now, I think, to uh, pause for a promo from another fine podcast, and then get into the conversation with George. Hi, this is Jim Adams from Monster Attack, inviting you to join us every Monday night at 5 o'clock for an all-new episode of Monster Attack. For the last seven years, we've been talking about these wonderful movies that we grew up with as monster kids. So join us every Monday at 5 p.m. right here on the ESO Network.
And we're back. And like we mentioned at the top of the show today, we have a guest today who has an extensive career in both television and film. We know him best from X-Men the Animated Series and coming up, X-Men 97, and that is George Buza. George, welcome to the 42 cast. Well, thank you very much. Glad to be here. All right. Yeah, and we're glad to have you. So starting off, I like to usually ask people who come on the show for a little bit of background about themselves. So out of curiosity, where are you from originally? Cleveland, Ohio. Okay. And you live in Canada now, right? Yeah, yeah. I've been living here for almost 50 years. Oh, wow. What prompted the move? Well, they brought me up here to do a show, and it lasted six months. And when I was ready to go back home, I got offered another job and another job and another job. And uh, I decided that uh, things were pretty exciting here in terms of theater, which is what I was doing back in the early 70s. And uh, I went back to Cleveland and put in an application to become a permanent resident in Canada. And I had a couple of years worth of plays lined up. And it just kept snowballing one and one after the other. So this has been a very good move. Oh, wow. Excellent. Yeah, that's a great place for an actor to be. Well, at the time, there were only a few cities where you could really make a good living. New York, Los Angeles, and Chicago in the States. And I didn't even know about Toronto as being a viable opportunity. But when I got here, I found that the theater scene was in its uh, heyday all over the place. There was one theater after the other. They were all union. And the film industry really hadn't caught on yet until the later part of the 1970s. So this was like being on the ground floor of an industry. So it was a very exciting time. Oh, very cool. Yeah, I have a friend actually who made the move just a few years back. He lives in Stratford. Yes, yes. I, I was there for a season. Yeah, and he's yeah he's been performing there for several years now. Great theater. Yeah, that's what I've heard. Uh, I would love to get up there sometime, but, uh, <laughs> you know, coming out of COVID lockdown, I haven't been many places in the last few years. Well, you're not that far. I mean, you're in Chicago, right? Oh, outside, I'm in Milwaukee. Yeah, Milwaukee. So what got you into acting? Well, it, my girlfriend in high school, actually, because uh, I went to an all-boys school. She went to an all-girls school. They were around, around the corner from each other, and they were doing uh, Oliver for their senior class play, and they needed guys to audition. So I got roped into going and auditioning for uh, the part of Mr. Bumble, and I got the part. And when I went out there on stage uh, opening night, I felt like I'd found my place. Uh, I couldn't stop. And even after that show ended, I went around to all the different girls' schools and auditioned for the more plays and auditioned for the, and got in. And the rest is history. I could not deal with not being on stage. It was a bug that I caught <laughs> and couldn't get rid of. Oh, wow. Yeah. And of course, yeah, that's nice. You get to do it at all girls school. So you meet a lot of girls while you're doing well, it. Well, no, because I had a girlfriend at the time. This was uh, part of the leverage was that uh, <laughs> I had to go and audition. Otherwise, uh, life was not going to be the same. <laughs> <laughs> gotcha. Gotcha. Was there ever anything that you considered doing before you got the acting bug? Well, being a teacher was going to be the, uh, the choice. I and mean, this is something that my parents wanted me to go into. I came from a, a line of college professors and uh, and teachers on my dad's side. And so that would have been what they'd like me to do uh, when I announced that I was going to be a theater major and go into acting as a career. It was kind of like letting them know that I had Ebola or something like that. <laughs> it, was... <laughs> it didn't go over very well. 
Yeah, I, I kind of understand. Uh, since I'm on the parent side right now, I kind of understand the reaction a little bit of just, you know, like a little bit of worry. But <laughs> yeah, you could have chosen, you know, a philosophy as a major, you know, like, right. a lot of future in that, you know. <laughs> So you've performed in several different mediums. You've been on stage, you've done voice acting, you've been on television, film. What form of acting do you like the best? Well, you know, I never really had a favorite. Whatever I was doing was what I was totally committed to at the time. And I feel very lucky that I was able to be, to juggle all those different mediums and still maintain, you know, it was, uh, not everybody can do that. So right now, I, I would say that voice acting is what I'm really into because I'm old and I don't really want to go on a movie set anymore and spend 16 hours every day standing and freezing or whatever it is. <laughs> yeah, I really enjoy animation right now. And I'm doing uh, not just X-Men, but I'm also a, a recurring role on a, a children's series uh, for little ones called Eleanor Wonders Why. And they're all little rabbits, and I play Grandpa Rabbit. Well, yeah, no, and it's great that you can keep busy doing that, too. So that's uh, that's really good. Do you have any hobbies, things that you like to do when you're not acting? Well, I used to really be into motorcycles until uh, arthritis. Uh, you remember the uh, Sons of Anarchy? Well, I've got a sweatshirt my brother got me, Sons of Arthritis. <laughs> <laughs> I had to give it up. But I rode for most of my life, and I just sold the bike a couple of years ago. And now I'm into more sedentary activities like uh, the New York Times crossword puzzles. I devour those. And jigsaw puzzles, of all things, have become a puzzler. My wife was given a, a jigsaw puzzle by one of her girlfriends, and uh, it was laid out on the dining room table. And she has vertigo. So all these swirls and everything started to make her dizzy. So I came in there and put a couple of pieces in. And again, very much like that acting bug, I got bit hard. And now I can't <laughs> stop doing jigsaw puzzles. I've got stacks of them lined up in my office that I've done. And I just kind of give them away. I've got a granddaughter who likes doing them. So she ends up with most of them at the end. <laughs> yeah, no, I understand that. I'm not someone who seeks out the jigsaw puzzles, but whenever one's in front of me, it's just like I just like focus in on it. I cannot stop. I'll be there all day long. Mm -hmm. I get up early in the morning, 6.30 in the morning, I'll be there with a cup of coffee, putting puzzle pieces together. It's, it's absurd. <laughs> well, how did you get cast at X-Men the Animated Series? I got a general audition call from my agent, as did a whole slew of other actors in Toronto. And we all just individually went in there and read for these parts, and uh, I got the part of Beast. Now, there's a curious story because uh, they all ask us, did you know what you were auditioning for? Well, everybody says they didn't, but I did. And it was when I was reading the words. I used to read X-Men comics when I was a kid. I remember seeing X-Men number one when it first came out. On the, It was right next to the Superman comic that I used to buy every week. So when I'm reading these audition sides and I'm looking at it, I go, <laughs> there was some, they called it Project X which means, you know, you're not allowed to know what this really is. I said, Project X, you know, they could have chosen a better name because this is X-Men. <laughs> I said, holy macro. Uh, it just raised the excitement level of that audition so much higher because there you are, you read the comic books as a kid, and all of a sudden you're auditioning to play one of the heroes mm -hmm. in your adult life. 
So I got goosebumps just thinking about it right now. You know, it was a very exciting thing. Like, holy mackerel, I got a shot at being an X-Men? Yeah, it's mind-blowing. <laughs> yeah, no, I can imagine, yeah. What was the uh, the nature of like recording that? Was it something where you were all together recording, or did you each go into a booth individually? Well, in the beginning, yes. We did it very much like radio drama, where all of us were together in one room. But it turned out to be a very difficult thing to do because, well, again, it was nearly 30 years ago, the technology was not what it is today. And every time somebody had to speak, everybody else's microphones had to be turned off because of the feedback, the noises that, you know, you could hear other people breathing. So it was interrupting the whole spontaneity of the thing. They were trying to get that interactive atmosphere that you got in radio drama, but they didn't have the technology to pull it off. So that it became a very tedious thing. Eventually, we just went to individual recordings. Or one or two people, if they had an intimate scene that uh, they could control better. But when six or seven people were in the room together, it was almost unwieldy. Okay, so did you think it worked better than uh, doing it individually versus the interaction? It didn't really work better. It was kind of a deterrent because the spontaneity, you know, there was almost a 10-second pause between lines. So that whole thing of, you know, being able to jump on the other person's line and get that kind of interaction going was defeated. Because the guy had to flip the switch and turn everybody's mic off and then turn your mic on. So by the time that you delivered your line, there wasn't any kind of connection to what had come before. There was a huge dead space. So it, it became much more convenient to do it individually, which is the way we do it now. So what do you like about playing Dr. Henry McCoy specifically? I identified with the character a great deal. Mm. Because growing up in the 1950s, I was a fat kid. I was the son of uh, refugees from World War II. So I got bullied in school, and I was kind of different. I didn't speak really well English, uh, good English, until I was about four or five. And uh, I was a big kid. And uh, the whole thing about bullying, eventually I realized that if I, I fought back, that, you know, sometimes the bullying would stop because I did have the size to my advantage in a lot of cases. But I also learned that it was very much like Hank McCoy did to talk your way out of a situation and to try and smooth things over rather than immediately go the, the Wolverine route, <laughs> which is, you know, out come the claws and come on, bub, you know. <laughs> <laughs> so... Hank would try and defuse the situation, and then if all else failed, he would quote a famous poet and then beat the crap out of the guy. <laughs> that was uh, something that I could identify. In later years, it even paid off more. Before I even did uh, Hank, I used to bounce in bars, you know, between theater gigs. I mean, for one thing, I was too big to be a waiter. <laughs> so <laughs> you'd get jobs bouncing in bars, and I never hit anybody. You'd always try and talk your way out of a situation or try and restrain somebody. And then just your your object was to get them out the door. And that was it. It wasn't to prove that you were tougher or anything. Your job was to get the guy out. And so, yeah, I did identify very much with the character of Beast. Oh, very cool. Yeah. So with that said, if you could have played any other character in X-Men, is there anyone else that you think, oh, man, that would have been an interesting part to play also? Well, who wouldn't want to play Wolverine? 
<laughs> you know, that was a cool part, you know. And my buddy Cal is lucky enough to have gotten the part, and he was fabulous. He still is fabulous at. So yeah, that would that was an attractive part. But I was very very happy to to be playing Beast because ultimately, when people are casting, they find elements of the character within the actor that is going to play that, so that it all matches up. This is why when things are done properly, they work. Because an actor uses himself as the basis to build the character on. So there were parts of me that were in Beast, and there were parts of Beast that I found were in me. So it was kind of like a, a perfect blend. That's really good. So uh, as far as the character of the Beast and what you were allowed to do with the character, was there ever anything that you thought that, oh, well, I wish that they could have let me do, you know, something different with the Beast? Or did you have any, like, ideas like that? Well, no, they actually did. They wrote a, a very beautiful story called Beauty and the Beast, where Hank falls in love with the blind girl, and her father is the horrible bigot that doesn't even want him working on her or curing her, and she falls in love with him, and... At the end, he has to give her up because it will be too dangerous for her to be with him because of the state of affairs at the time. So, yeah, that was that was one of those episodes where I got to go beyond the stereotype of the big brawny guy with brains and uh, to be able to explore other emotions. Were you aware while you were doing the show how positive the fan reaction was? No, they kept us completely in the dark. I don't know for what reason, perhaps because they thought if we were too successful, we'd want to get paid more. Who knows? But <laughs> the point is that we never knew the extent to which the show was uh, reaching people. We, we were never told of the hallways that were filled with mailbags to the ceiling with fan mail. They kept us hanging every year to whether or not we were going to come back and do another season or not. So we were always kept a little bit off balance. But that's the way of the business, you know? You never, hey, we're in a huge hit show. You guys, were making zillions of dollars. This is what happened with the recent strike, was that I, th I don't know who it was that was in uh, some sort of convention or whatever. It was the head of Netflix or one of the large streaming operations. That's, he let it slide that they, they were having 100 million views on their streaming. 100 million? And residuals are what? Zip? You know, so this is what caused the whole strike was this, this guy let it slide that, you know, this is massive, massive audience reaching and uh, we're getting diddly. And that's what the, the strike was all about, besides the AI. But no, we were never really told how successful the show was. We just knew that every year we were going to get uh, another season out of it. And then when we reached five, the show ended, which is uh, the usual uh, for syndication, you go five seasons and you've got uh, a, a good package that they put out. I mean, we were all sad to see it end, but we never had any idea how big the show was. Not until Disney bought Marvel and put X-Men back on the air on Disney+. And it became the number one show for a long time. And this is when we realized that the show was such a hit that it still is a hit today. So even in the years between when you were doing The Beast and when Disney bought Marvel, you were not aware that this had a huge following when it was airing on Fox. 
No, no, because we'd all moved on to other things. You know, the X-Men ended. And by the time X-Men was uh, finished, I was already in South Africa filming another series, Sinbad, The Adventures of Sinbad. And then from there, I went to work for Disney again. I did uh, two years on Honey, I Shrunk the Kids, the TV series with Peter Scolari. God bless his soul. He was a fabulous, fabulous guy to work with. But no, we never gave it a second thought. You know, it was just another one of those things that the, the job was over. We went on to do other things. And we ran into each other frequently because we were all in the same community in Toronto. And you'd see each other at auditions, but it never really came up. I mean, we were a little bit miffed at the fact that they came up with the uh, next generation X-Men. You know, we were all kind of put out the pasture and they came up with the younger version. So we were a little bit, you know, miffed about that. Yeah. Yeah, I can definitely understand that. <laughs> <laughs> and a lot, I can tell you, a lot of us who are watching would have preferred just continuation of, hey, you already had a great version of X-Men. Just keep going with that. Well, quite frankly, I think the thing, things turned out wonderfully because who would have expected that uh, this would happen 27 years later? that we'd all be back doing uh, X-Men 97 and pick it up right at, right where we left off. Yeah, I was definitely shocked when I heard the news just because I figured, huh, Disney's going to want to do their own version now that they own Marvel. No, no they didn't. You know, the, this is the thing. When I read the very first script when we were going back into the studio, it felt like it was back in this 96. It had that same flavor, the same kind of... Uh, spirit that we had way back when and everybody that is working on the show today is an avid x-men fan when they did the original version there were people who didn't even know what x-men was that were working on the show this is something that larry and larry, larry houston and eric leewald revealed to us that the, they hired people that they'd never heard of x-men but they were animators but in this case everybody who was working on x-men 97 has to be a diehard X-Men fan. So that that's working in our favor. Yeah, and I've heard that specifically the writers are fans of the animated show. So not just X-Men fans, but fans of the that's show. That's right, yeah, of the animated show. Yeah, no, so they, yeah, I'm very excited, believe me, because, yeah, I, I never expected that we would get new episodes. No, me neither. And I'm so excited to see it. It's uh, amazing. Oh. I've seen little tiny snippets of it when we've gone in to do uh, <laughs> some ADR. And all I can say is it looks fabulous. Excellent. Yeah, they've shown some teaser animation, but yeah. you know, it might not be quite the finished version yet and stuff like that. Well, this is all I've seen is the little snippets that uh, where they have to replace a little piece of dialogue. You get to see about 30 seconds. That's it. <laughs> yeah, here's hoping. I mean, everything points to it uh, releasing next year. So uh, here's hoping. We well, this is it. Soon. Yeah, they are saying 24 is going to be when it comes out. You also uh, got to work at the same time. You had the crossover with Spider-Man uh, where you were yeah. in a couple of episodes. Was that like an event for you? Oh, sure. <laughs> you know, again, this was something that uh, when you read the comics and all of a sudden you're getting to be a part of it, you know, the same thing happened. Well, the very first really big animated series that I got was The Land of the Ewoks, mm. which was a spinoff of Star Wars. And uh, this precedes X-Men by, you know, a long, long time. And I remember seeing Star Wars and walking out of the theater and going in the wrong direction. 
because I was so stunned by what I just seen. Mm -hmm. And this is something that a university professor of mine told me in drama class. He says, you know, you've seen a good show when you walk out of the theater and you go in the wrong direction to go home. He says, that is the mark of a good show. And this is always what came back to mind, because that's what exactly what I did when I came out of Star Wars. I was just wandering around in this daze, like, what did we just experience? And then a short while later, they come out with the animated version of the Ewoks, and I'm auditioning for the chief cheerper role, and I nail it. And again, this is one of those, my God, I'm, I'm participating in Star Wars. You know, part of Star Wars. And again, in when we did Maniac Mansion, that was produced by George Lucas. And uh, for the final show, he showed up, and the final show was a giant rap party. And they filmed it. And this was everybody played their own character, but it was at a rap party. And he brought the actual laser swords from Star Wars. So we got to play with them. So these are all the mind-blowing experiences where you get a brush with things that were monumental events in your life and all of a sudden you get to touch them and speak to them work with them yeah so did you like record your stuff in canada or did you actually go down to la to record no, the no we recorded everything here toronto has been a, a real hotbed of animation you wouldn't believe the amount of animated series that come out of here Oh, no, no, I, I realized that. Yeah, no, it's just I believe that Spider-Man was actually recorded in L.A., but that was know. in L.A. Yeah, we did a we recorded that in Toronto and then uh, they just transferred it down there. We did. <laughs> these were all delivered on cassette tape. <laughs> yeah, I think I read that in, uh, in Eric Leewald's book that he talked about yeah. listening to tapes. That's right. And these were all sent down to L.A. Our recording sessions were sent down there on cassette tapes. So. After X-Men, one of the things that you worked on was X-Men again, but this time the live action movie. Yeah. You played the trucker that Rogue hitches a ride with for a ways. So how did that come about? That was another total fluke. I just answered a general casting call for some bit parts in the movie. My agent sent me out and I went and I read my three or four lines as the trucker. and The guy that was the stunt coordinator was a friend of mine and he leaned over to Brian Singer and he said, that's the voice of Beast. And Brian kind of lit up and he says, you know, without your show, we wouldn't be making this movie today. And I got the part of the trucker and got to have a tiny little scene with Hugh Jackman and with Anna Paquin. And uh, yeah, again, a brush with legacy. You know? <laughs> <laughs> right. Were you aware when X-Men 3 came out that they were looking for someone to play the Beast? Oh, uh, no, I never even would have considered it. For one thing, Kelsey Grammer did a fabulous job. And I am in absolutely no shape to be playing a superhero physically. My agent just recently uh, sent me a notification that they were looking for somebody to do motion capture for a video game. And I had to remind her, I said, look at my birth date, okay? <laughs> <laughs> I am I am not a young guy to be, you know, doing all these contact and fight scenes. Although to be fair, I think Kelsey Grammer probably isn't that, you know, <laughs> physically, you know, active either. So I don't think he had to do any real massive fight scenes or anything like that. Right. 
and a lot of that's done with cgi anyway it is yeah i mean we did tons of cgi on the adventures of sinbad but this is also where we realize i've i learned what is involved in motion capture the guy puts on this green suit and he's got hundreds and hundreds of contact points all over so that his body motions are nothing but contact points because the green screen completely obliterates his body and all there are are these contact points which then they can fill in with whatever creature they're creating and this is what they wanted me to do was wear this green suit and then do all this action so that they could animate some sort of creature <laughs> <laughs> the last action thing that i really did was uh, about 10 years ago was the christmas horror story where i i did have a lot of fight scenes and a lot of action the North Pole is uh, afflicted with a zombie virus, and Santa has to fight off all the uh, zombie elves. <laughs> wow, they really have put zombies in everything now. Oh, it was—it's actually a great movie. Rotten Tomatoes gave it an eighty percent rating. Wow, which is very generous. And William Shatner was in it. Oh, <laughs> again, a brush with greatness. You know, <laughs> I had a scene with it. Were you a Star Trek fan? Oh, yes. I didn't miss an episode. Huge Star Trek fan. Awesome. And uh, I had to really hold myself back from gushing when I met William Shatner. I very meekly asked him if I could get a photo taken with him. <laughs> Just to prove that, yes, I did. <laughs> well, how did you find it working with him? He was very delightful. He was... Fabulous. He did an amazing job. He shot all those scenes in one day. I don't know if you've seen the movie, but I haven't. he's got quite a lot to do. And he did everything in one day flawlessly. And uh, he was very gracious, very nice to work with. And uh, what can I say? I, I have met him for one day, <laughs> you know, and I was impressed. Yeah, that's nice when you get to meet the people you've admired for years. Yeah, like the I I was lucky enough to do a movie called Descending Angel with George C. Scott. And again, this was one of those moments where I I, I was sharing the screen with one of the giants of uh, of the acting profession. And uh, I really had to again hold myself back from me. <laughs> Holy mackerel, I'm I'm acting with George C. Scott. Yeah. Oh, that's great. So yeah, I mean, how do you, how um have you watched uh, some of the later live action movies? You know, because like we mentioned, Kelsey Grammer has played the Beast. Oh yeah, also I've Nick seen Holt. them all. Yeah, okay. I, I'm still an X Men fan. Yes. <laughs> so what is that like watching other? Because like you know, Kel like we mentioned, Kelsey Grammer's played the Beast. Also, Nick Holt has played the Beast. So you know, what is that like watching other people sort of interpret the character? Well, for one thing, I'm uh, they did a fabulous job, and I. I I thank my stars that it wasn't me that had to be painted blue. <laughs> <laughs> have you ever had to do any roles where you had to spend I hours have been in painted the chair? Blue. I yeah. have not Maniac Mansion. They painted me blue. <laughs> Was that like hours and hours of makeup? Oh, yeah. Hours and both getting on and taking off. Because it doesn't just like disappear. It's like <laughs> scrub, scrub, scrub. and. <laughs> Yeah, it sounds like something I wouldn't enjoy either. So understand. No, it's not a glamorous lifestyle. You know, when you're out there on the set, like Canada has got a very fierce climate in the wintertime, and we're shooting a lot of movies that are in winter. 
And the, the one thing that actors really hate to hear is when the AD says, okay, take their coats. Because <laughs> you're out there in 30 below zero pretending that it's summer. I've actually heard a director say, excuse me, can you stop shaking? <laughs> freezing to death well on on that movie the uh christmas horror story at the end of the movie santa's got this huge uh, fight scene with krampus and krampus is this giant monster who is played by this bodybuilder who had one percent body fat and his costume consisted of body paint and a loincloth and it was 30 degree, 30 below zero when we filmed the scene, way up uh, north of Toronto in an old horse stable. And I felt for this guy. I, how he didn't get hypothermia is beyond me, because I was cold and I was wearing long johns and a, a wool cape and, you know, the whole Santa regalia. And I was freezing, and uh, this guy was wearing nothing but paint. So it was like, Jeez, that's, that's going all out for your your art. Yeah, wow, wow. When did you learn that the animated series was being revived for X-Men 97? Well, I got an email from, uh, oddly enough, my agent from doing Comic-Cons, the booking agent that uh, puts us into these shows. And I guess they got in touch with him that uh, they wanted to hear all our voices again. So we all laid down our uh, audition, and it was, it was the identical pages that we auditioned for in the beginning, <laughs> back in 91, and uh, waited for uh, their decisions. And Oh, wow. So they made you re-audition oh, for yeah, the part yeah. that you had already had. Okay. <laughs> so did you have any hesitation about the idea of returning to playing the character? Oh, absolutely not. We all wanted it. We started doing Comic-Cons a couple of years before this actually happened. And the, it was when uh, Eric and Julia came out with their book. And they wanted to get, uh, get as many uh, of us together as they could at this uh, Comic-Con in Texas. And it was the, uh, the one in New Braunfels, just outside of San Antonio. And I think there were about four of us that went. There was Lenore... Myself, Cal, and uh, Tony Daniels. And I think that was it. There were four of us there, and Eric and Julia. And I think Larry Houston was there as well. But this was the first gathering of all the X-Men since we'd uh, finished the series in 96. And uh, we all talked about, wouldn't it be great if we came back? And, you know, we're all still here. We're all raring to go. Nothing much has changed. We still have the same voices we had back then. Wouldn't it be great if we could do it? And then uh, it happened. <laughs> you know, what can you say? You know, wow. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Was it difficult to find the performance of the Beast again? Oh, absolutely not. Not in the least. I mean, I did rewatch the series. I watched the uh, the shows again to get a quality of what I had done. But no, it wasn't hard slipping back into the character at all. I mean, that's partially because the writing is so good, too. You know, an actor only has the words that he's given to work with. And uh, all I can say is those words are good. You know, they, they did a good job. Oh, that's really great to hear. 
Do you do anything to get like into character? Like, is there any like uh, sort of method that you use or does it just sort of come out? I actually have a t-shirt that says method man, master of the super objective enemy of the articulate. (laughs) (laughs) So no, I'm not a method man. I, I used to really hate working with guys that were, you couldn't talk to them. I remember this one guy in particular, we were doing this historical drama in Southern Ohio called Trumpet in the Land. There was these historical pageants and uh, you couldn't talk to him because he was so in character that backstage he would be pacing and constantly and you, and you couldn't approach him whatsoever. And I came from the, the crowd that would be playing bridge backstage. You know, okay, two hearts, two hearts, waiting for your cue and laying down a slam while you're running out you know (laughs) (laughs) a much more natural performance you just come out and you do it (laughs) yeah but we used to play bridge backstage all the time and if you had a really good hand you'd cut it so close (laughs) (laughs) when you had to be out on stage (laughs) make people a little nervous where is yes (laughs) oh i've been stranded out there alone somebody missed their cue and i was out there for like what seemed an eternity. And uh, finally, the gal that was playing opposite me showed up on stage. All I could say was, where the heck have you been? <laughs> and I was just, oh, I was unexpectedly detained. And then we went into the scene. But <laughs> it's like I was out there with who on my face for about two or three minutes while she was doing whatever she was doing, missing her cue. That sounds terrifying. <laughs> it is. It is, because there is no safety net in theater. Right. I remember drying during one three-page monologue. It was during Curse of the Werewolf, and I was playing the mad scientist that turned all these people into werewolves. And I had this actress uh, tied to a pillar with a sock in her mouth, gagged. She was the only one on stage, and I dried during this three-page monologue. So usually an actor will try and help the other actor out find his way again. You know? mm-hmm. But all she could do was... <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, not a lot of help there. <laughs> no, not a lot of help. So how is it different playing the Beast in 2023 versus 1993? And that can either be technically or subjectively. Well, I feel like I'm back and doing it in 1997 again, because for one thing, we're recording in the exact same studio we did the original show. Oh, that's nice. And in the exact same room. <laughs> so it was deja vu all over again, to quote Yogi Berra. And... uh I felt just as like slipping right back into that time, a lot older, a lot wiser, hopefully, but, uh, no, it was a very, very easy segue. Oh, well, that's good. So has X-Men 97 allowed the beast to grow as a character? Well, I really can't talk about what is going to be in the show. All I can say is that the writing has remained true to what was done in the original series and, uh, Everybody is going to be very, very pleased with what they see on the screen. And they just, you know, be patient, you know, because it'll be there soon. All right. Yeah. So, you know, we've done a lot of talking about the Beast and your work with X-Men. But like I mentioned at the top of the show, you know, I looked at your IMDb and it's something like 175 entries as an actor. You know, <laughs> so, There's quite a bit there. I've never counted, but I've been doing it since 1971. So, yeah, I guess there's a lot of room there for a lot of work. 
Are there any other performances that you would point people to that if people are curious about your work, either particular shows or movies or things that people can check out that you'd like people to see? Well, there's this cult film called The Brain, which uh, has come back into some sort of prominence. It was a really low-budget horror film that I did back in the early 80s. And uh, it seems to have developed a, a cult following. So that's, that's uh, something. And then there was Meatballs 3, which is uh, a real fun teenage kind of coming-of-age movie that was one of Patrick Dempsey's first films. And uh, that was a heck of a lot of fun to do. I played Mean Gene. This guy was a, a bar owner and a, a biker uh, on the water. They, we, we had Harleys on boats. <laughs> and uh, it was a real fun movie. There were a lot of great people. And Sally Kellerman was in it. And uh, as I said, Patrick Dempsey played the uh, the young kid working for me in my bar. There were a lot of big people in the show. And uh, that was a fun movie. So I can't think of anything. And that uh, Christmas horror story is definitely something worth checking out. Because I, I did have a heck of a lot of fun doing that, and uh, I think we did a really good film. What is the brain about? The brain is about this brain that comes from outer space that uh, eats people. <laughs> it, gets, uh, it it invades people through television and the media and uh, hypnotizes them and turns them into kind of like zombies. and And it also eats people. As I said, it was a very low-budget uh, horror picture, uh, but it's fun. It is fun. Yeah, no, I, I definitely have ones of those that I like, too, the, the sort of low-budget, but they're fun to watch kind of thing. Well, know? I used to watch all these when I was a kid. I used to go over to my grandmother's house, and on Saturday night, we used to have this guy called Goulardi, or the ghoul, whichever came first. Uh, I think it was Goulardi. And he would host the horror movies on Saturday nights or Friday nights, one or the other. And they were like uh, The Blob, The Thing, uh, The Attack of the Crab Monsters, <laughs> these uh, The Fly, mm -hmm. all these cheap 1950s horror films. And they were so much fun to watch. And it's very much like the same thing but the brain. Yeah, uh, I don't know if you're familiar with the show called Mystery Science Theater 3000, but they've taken a lot of those old movies and sort of, you know, put put little bookends around them with you yeah, know, characters yeah. and, and such. And yeah, it's a lot of people have experienced a lot of those old movies from the 50s and 60s. Creature from the Black Lagoon. Mm -hmm. Right, exactly, exactly. So uh, anything that you want to plug that uh, you have either coming up or that you're working on now? Well, all I'm working on now is uh, the X-Men and uh, Eleanor Wonders Why. Those are the two. And he, we just started the Eleanor. They brought us back from the original number of years ago. Uh, Linda Cash plays the grandmother bunny rabbit, and I play the grandpa bunny rabbit. So that uh, those are the only projects that I have on the go right now, and I'm kind of trying to keep it that way. <laughs> Enjoy my 11 grandkids and uh, watching them grow up, doing my puzzles and being an old guy. And I also enjoy doing the Comic-Cons. I love meeting the fans. I love traveling to different places I haven't been. I find that to be the most fun right now. 
Yeah, I was really disappointed. I wanted to go to C2E2 when you were here in Chicago, uh, but uh, I had the flu that weekend. And so I figured none of the guests would appreciate if I came with the flu and <laughs> wanted autographs. Well, these these Comic-Cons are also allowing me to get in touch with a lot of people that I have not seen in decades. One of my very best friends from university at Baldwin Wallace was a guy named BJ, Bill Jones, who runs the North Light Theater in Chicago. So we hadn't seen each other since 1991 or two. And uh, when we did C2E2, I called him and we got together and caught up on the last 30 years. And he gave me the names and addresses of several other people that we used to hang out with in the theater. And then I went and did another show in Rhode Island. And one of these guys that was my roommate lives an hour away from Providence. And we hadn't seen each other in 52 years. So we got together and we had to send pictures of each other. This is what I look like now. So you're just walking and you go, who's that old guy there? Well, that's him, you know. <laughs> <laughs> and I got in touch with all these people everywhere I go now. If I'm doing a show, I try and find if I know anybody, anybody that I went to school with and get in touch with them again. So that's been very, very exciting. Oh, yeah, that, that's really great that you're able to reconnect with people like that. What is it like meeting all these fans that are coming up and are interested in this work that you did? I mean, I get that you're doing X-Men 97 now, that, uh, but nobody's seen that. But it's work that, you, you know, the work you did 30 years ago on X-Men, the animated series that they're really excited about. It's very touching because what these people are telling us is how much the show meant to them and how they found refuge from their everyday problems in our show. And these were the people who were disenfranchised and people who were having problems and, the, and being bullied and whatnot. They would find the refuge in our show. And this is another thing that we never knew. And now that we're starting to do these shows, uh, the Comic-Cons, and we're hearing from people who are now adults how much this show meant to them and how they would race home from school and turn on the TV and just lose themselves in, in the X-Men. And they bring their children. And they said, and we're teaching our kids the same thing. We're introducing them to X-Men. And I think that in today's world, the message that we bear is even more important and more poignant than it was back in the 1990s. Things have become, I don't want to get on a soapbox here, but things have become very extreme. And I think the message of acceptance and uh, in coexistence that the X-Men is trying to purvey is even more important today than it was 30 years ago. Because I think we got along better 30 years ago than we are today. We're so polarized that uh, it, it's, it's disheartening. And I was a hippie back in the old days and we thought we were going to change the world. And uh, we didn't. And it's kind of disappointing. And one of my old roommates, uh, who I tracked down, is is living now in, in Washington State. Of course, a, a wonderful destination for all old hippies. <laughs> <laughs> and so I'm hoping to get a show sometime in Seattle so that I can reconnect with him. Because we hadn't seen each other either since 1972 when we graduated. That was the last I saw him was when we uh, graduated from BW. Long time ago. Well, it would be great, yeah, if you could have that opportunity to reconnect with more people. 
I will say that for my opinion, as far you know, as being a fan, one of the things that Eric Leewald talks about in his book is that originally there were different people cast to play the parts and they were people who were trying to do more of a cartoony kind of performance and they brought in stage actors yes with your group that came in and i think that having you know it's both a combination of the writing on that show as well as the authenticity that all of you brought to your performances that really connected with audiences because that was the first cartoon x-men the animated series was the first cartoon where i felt like this wasn't a cartoon i was watching these were real people and real sort of feelings that i was connecting with in that show and so that's why i think that it kind of created the sort of cult following that it did is because of that level of connection you could have with your audience well because it didn't talk down to anybody Mm -hmm. and it was done very much like radio drama with pictures mm-hmm. and this is the way they think that they succeeded because the, when you do pull people from the theater backgrounds you're getting uh i, I don't want to disparage you know movie acting or tv acting, but the soul of acting lives on the stage really and it's something that i kind of miss i haven't done theater now in decades and i'd be really loath to go back these days because i wouldn't be confident enough in my memory to be able to memorize all those lines because for the last 30 or 40 years i haven't had to do any more than a few pages a day you know and never memorizing any, and you can forget it you know you memorize your scenes and then you go out you do them and you don't have to do them again and on theater you know you're memorizing the whole two and a half or however many hours the show is and you got to keep it Hats off to the old guys that can still do it, but I don't have the confidence anymore to to go out there and do live theater or the stamina for all that matter, because that's it's hard work. Yeah, I've only ever done a high school production, but I understand the amount of work that has to go into memorizing. Oh, especially if you're if you're doing a musical and you've got dancing and singing and uh, and in Shakespeare, you know the dialogue and all the fights and the sword fighting and everything. Uh, I was trained uh, to do fighting by Patty Crane from Stratford, who used to be Errol Flynn's double. So he he was, we did a show called Zastrazzi back in 1977. It was by George F. Walker, and it was this brilliant play that took place in the 19th century, and it was all swashbuckling and saber fighting. And they bought Patty Crane in to teach us all to fight with sabers. There's not a lot of us left from that cast anymore. But uh, Patty's gone as well. So Stephen Markle. So is David Bolt. You know, this the herd is thinning from all the the crowd that used to be in the the limelight back in the seventies. It's an unfortunate thing that happens as we move forward in time. Well, even amongst the X-Men, there are several of us that uh, have passed on. Yeah, I was sad to hear about Norm Spencer's passing. Yeah, and Magneto, too, David Hemmer. Right. He's passed away as well. I shared a dressing room with him. We did this this ghastly play called Pushkin, which was two and a half hours, three hours of verbiage. And he, we shared a dressing room, and it was uh, quite a lot of fun working with David. Yeah, it was kind of funny because uh, his voice was so distinctive that I started like hearing it in other things. And I was going like, wait, that's Magneto. You know, like he did a show called Earth Final Conflict after X-Men. 
And, you know, I'd never seen him before, but it's like, I heard that voice and I was like, that's Magneto. <laughs> you know? He was a wonderful actor. Yeah, no, I, I always, and that was another thing that I always thought was great about X-Men was that Magneto was never tr- treated like a mustache twirling villain. He was a character no. that had a really good point that he was making. And we might disagree with the methods that he was using, but. Well, also he, the past that he came from. Mm-hmm. Yeah, one of my favorite performances of yours is actually one of the first few episodes. There's the scene where Magneto comes to break the beast out of prison. And the two of them actually have a philosophical debate about how mutants can live in society. And the fact that by submitting to the laws of people, the beasts are saying that, no, this is how we prove to people that we're no different than they are. And Magneto says, no, you're being oppressed. Yeah, we need to fight back. And so it's great because I had never seen anything like that until like in a cartoon before that level of reality as far as like how characters would react to a situation like this. Yeah, no, we tackled some very serious issues and still are. Yeah, I can't wait to see the the new show. I'm very excited about that. But George, that's all that I have for you today. I would like to thank you for the years of performances that you've put in both with Beast there, I mean, as well as all the other work that you've done entertaining people. And thank you for coming on the show. Well, thank you for having me. And thank you to all the fans who have supported all the things that we have done, because without the fans, we would be nowhere and we would not have careers. And I look forward to seeing all of you at any of the shows that we'll be attending in the future. And thanks again for having me on. Oh, no problem. And yeah, if you're ever back in the Chicago area, hopefully I will not have the flu and I will be able to see you in person. (laughs) Well, we'd love to come back. I'd love to get together with my friend again and uh, see a little bit more of Chicago. There was a huge storm that came through during that. And when we went out to dinner, they blew down one of the lampposts. We were in the theater district. And one of those ancient lampposts was blown down. I guess a tornado had come through Chicago. Oh, wow that weekend and there was quite a lot of damage oh wow yeah no and there's multiple cons in chicago so it wouldn't even have to be c2e2 you could come to like fan expo chicago or something well we've been trying to get into fan expo because i I still yet to do a show in my own hometown you know i would love to do a show in cleveland oh this is that's where i came from i still have a lot of friends there that's where my brother lives it would be really neat to be able to do a show there all right. Well, yeah, here's hoping 2024 yeah. brings all of those experiences <laughs> for you. And again, thank you for uh, coming on the show, George. Okay. Thank you again. All right. Take care. Bye. You have been listening to the 42 cast copyright 2023. Got a question for the ultimate answer? Contact us at everything at 42cast.com. Theme music is Sharper Swords by Brandon Ellis. Check out more of his work at www.cityfires.com. The 42Cast is a proud member of the ESO Network. This has been a broadcast of the ESO Network. Be part of the crew and help support our shows by donating to our ESO Patreon or by shopping for the Tee Public Store, which can all be found at www.esonetwork.com.
the ESO Network, your station for all things geek.